It's good to be with all of you here at Gospel of Grace. I do know that we have some new attendees this morning, and I want to mention that we at Gospel of Grace, we do preach verse by verse through the Bible, me and Bob DeWay. And so we do that because we believe that that's how the Holy, the Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures, and we think that that's the best way to study them in context. It also prevents us as preachers from limiting our scope in teaching the Scriptures. All of us have biases, and so teaching verse by verse eliminates those biases. It makes us deal with the text as it comes. And so that's why we do that. So today we are in Matthew four twenty three through 25. That's where we find ourselves providentially. I'm going to start my timer here so I know how long to speak. And I want to remind everyone that last week we had studied Matthew's summary of Christ calling his first apostles. Now today in Matthew four twenty three through 25, we're also going to see a summary, but this time... It is a summary of Christ's healings. And what we're going to find is that Jesus is portrayed as the long-awaited Messiah in the Old Testament who would come and bring healing. And so we're going to see that from these healings, he has mastery over all creation. Jesus can heal the demonic. He can heal those who are sick and infirm. And he can even raise the dead. And so the point of all of this is to show that Jesus, again, is the long-awaited Messiah He is the Messiah who heals, the one who ultimately will bring us the healing we all need, that is, for those who trust in him, the healing of forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. Now, I want to remind you that in the summaries that Matthew is giving here in chapter 4, they will later be filled out in detail in later chapters in Matthew. So remember, we're in the last verses of Matthew 4. When we get to Matthew chapter 5 to 7, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, then when you get into chapter 8 and on, you're going to see specifics about the healings and his preaching ministry that we're looking at in summary form here. So it's the summary that we pick it up here in verse 23. Matthew recorded this. He said, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Now, I want you to, I'm going to pull up my pointer real quick here. And I want you to note here this phrase where it says that he was going throughout all of Galilee. Jesus had a very widespread ministry, but I want you to see that it was primarily in Jewish areas. And one of the reasons we know that is in Matthew 15, 24. Don't turn to it, but if you're a note taker, just jot down Matthew 15, 24. Because there Jesus himself says that he was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, he does have a ministry to the Gentiles, and I'll show you that, but his emphasis was first on the Jews. And we see that here in context in verse 23. Notice in the underline, it says that he was teaching in their synagogues. And of course, we know synagogues are Jewish, not Gentile. Now, when you see in that underline that he was teaching in their synagogues, that should take us as the alert reader back to Isaiah 61 because it is a fulfillment of Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, where God had promised that the Messiah was going to be the original preacher of the gospel. In fact, I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2. Let's look at that text. It's a text that Jesus cites in his hometown synagogue. Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. Please turn there. And again, as you turn to Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, one of the reasons I want you to turn there is I want you to see that Jesus himself sees that he is the fulfillment of this text. 
So it's not me reading into it. Jesus affirms that. So Isaiah 61, verse 1, let's start there. Notice it says, I hope you've turned there. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Now, let's stop there for just a moment in verse 1. Notice here, this is the Messiah, and he's anointed to do what? Notice the three words, bring good news. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. There's three words, but it's one verb in Hebrew, bizarre. Bizarre, it's the idea that he would bring good news. Now, that's very similar to this idea that we have in the New Testament of proclaiming the gospel. The term in the New Testament, uangelizo, is the verb by which we have to preach the gospel or the good news. Okay, the noun, uangelion, is the term that we have for evangelical. So an evangelical is a good newser, a gospeler. All right, does that make sense? So Jesus is the one who brings that good news. Now, who does he bring it to? Well, to the afflicted, to the captives, and to those who are prisoners. Now, what kind of prisoners are we talking about? Well, we're talking about those who are prisoners to sin. And that's, of course, the whole world. So he's the one that proclaims liberty, that by faith in him, they can have forgiveness. In fact, notice at the end of verse 1, notice he says, is to proclaim. You see how he uses that term, proclaim liberty? That's very similar to this proclaiming that you see in verse 23, keruso. The term in Hebrew is karah. So there's this proclamation of the gospel. Now, I want you to notice in verse 2, he goes on to say, this is to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Stop there. That's where Jesus stops in his hometown synagogue. Bob pointed this out today in the Sunday school class that the reason Jesus does not read further is because that is related to his second coming, bringing the vengeance. Now, I want you to think about in Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes to his hometown synagogue. And when he goes to his hometown synagogue, he is going to be the teacher of the day. And I want you to realize that when the teachers were appointed for the given Sabbath, they often had a scheduled reading in the synagogue. So it's not like the teacher would go through and say, hey, you know, I'm going to try to find something that I want to teach on and go through the scroll. No, it was on a set schedule. And lo and behold, in God's providence, what text was it in Jesus' hometown synagogue in Nazareth that he read from? Isaiah 6, 61, 1 through 2. So again, Jesus isn't flipping through the scroll to try to find something he wants to preach on. That's the allotted text for the day. And so after he got done reading what I just read to you, he looked at his hometown people in the synagogue and he said, Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, what was the re- response by the people who they wanted to kill them? Because they knew that he was claiming to be the Messiah. Dear ones, it was prophesied in Isaiah 61, 700 years prior to Christ's birth, that when the Messiah comes, he is going to be the preacher par excellence. Last week, we saw that Jesus is the prophet par excellence. He is the apostle par excellence, the one who originally is sent out into the world and who has other delegates that he sends out later. But every preacher who preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ is following in his footsteps. He's the original. He was to proclaim the good news. Now, notice when we look at his message, it is the proclaiming 
the gospel of the kingdom. Now, let's first of all talk about the term gospel. Gospel means good news. Now, it's not any good news. It's not that it's the good news that the Vikings may have a good team next year or the good news that you're not going to get audited by the IRS or some other good news that you may have in your life. It's the good news surrounding the person and work of Jesus, that if men and women will come by faith to him, they will receive the ultimate healing that everyone needs, forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. Now, notice when he talks about it's the gospel of the kingdom. Remember, at Jesus' first coming, the kingdom is being inaugurated. But at the second coming, the kingdom will be consummated. And so I think it's fair to say that, yes, the kingdom currently does not have an address. But what's happening at Christ's first coming and now during the church age, as men and women repent and believe in Jesus, they're being added as citizens who are enrolled in this future kingdom that will come when Jesus returns. Bob has talked about that for many years. The first coming is about Jesus claiming citizens. It is the second coming where Jesus claims the territory as he rules literally in Jerusalem over the entire earth. But it's the proclamation of the gospel that creates the citizenry. That's how the kingdom's coming about. And so it's fair to say that the reign of Christ is coming to bear in those who believe in Jesus Christ here and now. That yes, his rule and his reign begins with them, but one day it will extend over the whole world as he bodily rules and reigns. Now, notice here accompanying his preaching of the gospel, notice in blue, there was healing of every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. When Matthew says every kind, probably what he means is all sorts of them, all sorts of diseases. Not that there's every single disease that will ever be uh, in the world, but that there was all sorts of them that he wasn't limited in his power. And what I'm going to show you is later on, when we turn to Isaiah 35 in our application, what we're going to see is that the Messianic age, this is, by the way, is still in our future, the thousand-year reign of Christ called the Millennial Kingdom. When that kingdom would come, it would be characterized by Messianic healing. So here's the question. If that's true regarding Jesus' second coming, why does Jesus heal during his first coming? You know why? It's a down payment. It's a down payment where Jesus shows that he's good for the second coming. That if you come to him, he can give you the ultimate healing that every single person needs, the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. The miracles that he did at his first advent are the down payment of the everlasting life that he will give to those who believe at his second advent. All right, now, Let's move on here to verses 24 through 25. And here we see that Jesus' fame will spread because of the great power of his miracles. Notice it says, The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and Jerusalem, and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. I want you to note here that the news about him spread throughout all of Syria. To the Roman mind, Syria extended really through the whole part of the northern region of Israel. Now, 
we know that Syria is to the north and to the east of that. But what's interesting is Jesus didn't travel there. Rather, the news about him did travel. Why? Because even the pagans in foreign lands wanted someone who can heal. They may not see their need for the forgiveness of sins, but they all wanted a healer. And the fact here that notice Jesus can heal all sorts of diseases. Notice it's the various diseases shows again his power. Later on in the book of Matthew, we're going to see that Jesus can heal those who are born blind and born lame. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, to the Jewish mind, if you were born lame and you were healed, that was a miracle on par with God's initial creative act. Why? What was their reasoning? Well, what they reasoned is if you were able to walk at one point in your life and somehow you lost that ability, yes, if you were healed, it was certainly a restoration. But if you were born that way, born unable to walk, it was a creative act of God on par with God's initial ex nihilo out of nothing creation. That's how they understood it. And that's the power that Jesus Christ displays. In fact, notice here, added to the various diseases, he even can handle demoniacs. And what that shows us then is that Jesus can handle not only the physical infirmities of mankind, but he has complete mastery over the demonic realm. Who must this be then? Mastery over life and death, mastery over illness, mastery over the demonic realm, Well, I think it points to the fact he must be God. Well, as a result of this great power, notice what's the result. Verse 25, large crowds follow him. And where do they come from? They come from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. There's two important points, I think, related to that last verse in verse 25. Number one, we have to know that these large crowds that were following Jesus, they will ebb and they will flow. They will come and they will go. Now, It is the 12, of course, minus Judas, who are truly devoted to Christ. And, of course, there's a wider group of disciples. Uh, In fact, there will be a group of 70. And, yes, there are true believers in these large crowds. But, by and large, the masses probably come to get healing, not the forgiveness of sins. They want the wonder, but they don't want to trust in the, the one who does the wonder, the Lord Jesus. But it is the 12 who consistently follow Jesus. The second point that I think is important here is the fact that Jesus now is being followed by those in Gentile regions shows us that, yes, indeed, Jesus is the faithful son Israel never was. Remember in Isaiah 42, remember in Isaiah 49, it was promised that, yes, the suffering servant would be a light to the Gentiles. Israel was to be that. But Israel failed because of their sin. So again, Matthew is depicting Jesus as a faithful son Israel never was. Israel went to the wilderness for 40 years. They failed. Jesus went to the wilderness for 40 days. He succeeds. Israel, because of their failures, failed to be a light to the nations. Jesus, because he's the faithful son, he is a light to the nations. So it's not just Jews and it's not just the people of Israel that are going to find healing, but it's those who are Gentiles and who are far off. Why? Because Jesus is showing us through all these miracles once again 
that he's the great healer who is to come. The Messiah who is endowed to give us not just temporary healing, but the ultimate healing and forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. Now, I want to come to what I see as the major application point to this whole text, and that is this. The miracles Jesus performed prove that he is the creator and the long-awaited Messiah. That's why he did these miracles. And what you're going to see throughout the Gospel of Matthew is that there are two approaches to Jesus' miracles. The first is one of faith, that people like the disciples, the apostles, in a wider group, they will look at the miracles that Jesus does. They will accept them on face value, that they are a fulfillment of what was prophesied in the Old Testament. Therefore, he is the Messiah. But there's a second approach that we must be on guard for, and that's the approach of the leadership of Israel, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. They look at the miracles that Jesus does, and they ascribe them to the power of Satan, the power of Beelzebul. Now, what we're going to find out from that is that's a problem because the Spirit is using these miracles to testify as to who Christ is. That's the role of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's role is to bring people to faith in Christ. Well, if he is using the miracles to demonstrate who Christ is, but the leadership's ascribing the miracles to Satan... Do you see how it's impossible, therefore, to be saved? That's why Jesus warns about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Because blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is where you say, I won't take any evidence that the Spirit supplies as to who Christ is. I won't listen to any of it. That's the risk in turning down these miracles. And so my prayer is that for all of us, we'd be in the former camp, not in the latter. Now, What I want to do is I want to touch on what I perceive to be three different categories of miracles that we will come across as we go through the chapters of Matthew. Again, we just looked at the summary here today. We will see in greater detail these three categories. Now, the first category of miracles is that Jesus demonstrates through his miracles that he has authority over all creation. And in particular, I think his mastery over the sea demonstrates that he has authority over all creation. Remember, the Israelites were not a sea-going people. To them, the sea represented the abyss. It represented chaos. And so the fact that Jesus has mastery over it demonstrated to them that, or should have demonstrated that he is God. The second category of miracles that we will come across is Jesus will demonstrate authority over illness and death. Now, remember, according to Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So where do we get sickness and death? We get it from sin. So if Jesus can handle illness and death, it's an, by implication he can handle sin itself. He is the one who gives forgiveness. Third category, and by the way, we'll be looking at examples of each of these as we go here. The third category is Jesus has authority over the demonic realm. And again, God alone has power and authority over the demonic realm. You know, in the second century, a century after Jesus was teaching in his earthly ministry, there was a teaching called Gnosticism that grew up. And in Gnosticism, Gnosticism was radically dualistic, where they saw a bad and a good that were equals. In fact, a good example of that today, how many in here have ever watched Star Wars? I know it's very pantheistic. I'm a Star Wars fan. I've seen it before. Well, in Star Wars, they have the Force. 
very pantheistic, very pagan. But with the force, remember you have the, the good force and the bad force, the light and the dark, and they're depicted as equals. And I think that that's how some people view God and Satan, that somehow God and Satan, God is good and Satan is bad, but they're equals. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. No, God alone is all-powerful, and Satan is much his inferior. And so the fact that Jesus has authority over the demonic demonstrates that he is this God. And so the point of all of these is to demonstrate that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. That's the whole point of all of his miracles. And I'll show you that at the very end of our message. So what I'm going to do is give you examples of each of these. Let's begin with Jesus' mastery over all creation. Again, Matthew 4, 23 through 25 that we're studying today is a summary. But the specifics are going to come later. And so let's look at some of them. One of the places where we see Jesus' mastery over creation is found in Matthew chapter 8. Now, you're going to see here Jesus calm the storm on the sea. Why is that so important? Because to the Jews, mastery of the sea was something only God could do. That's only something he had. Think about back in Genesis 1. Certainly God creates all things in creation, including the sea. But you also remember that his spirit was hovering over the waters. And one of the implications to the Jews is that it was God who had mastery over the chaos and could bring about order from that which was chaotic. And so only God can do that. Only God has mastery over the sea. And the place we see this in Jesus' life, one of them, is where he's in the boat here with his disciples. They're on the Sea of Galilee. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, the Sea of Galilee has very high banks. And when I was there, being a pilot, I kind of thought, well, how would weather come about? Well, you can see how they could be taken by surprise. A rapidly approaching cold front from the northwest could spawn thunderstorms that they couldn't see because of the large banks on each side of the, the Sea of Galilee. And all of a sudden, the storm would come upon them quickly. And so that's where we pick it up here. There's this massive storm that comes upon them that threatens their lives. Jesus is in the boat with them, Matthew 8, 24 through 27. It says, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he, now remember, that's Jesus, he was asleep. And they, that's the disciples, went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and see obey him. Now, the first thing I want to point out is something I've pointed out numerous times, but here in this text, we see the two natures of Christ. Remember, the Messiah, according to Isaiah 9 and Isaiah chapter 11 and other places, was to be truly a man, but also truly God. And we see that here. Notice Jesus, as Messiah, is truly a man. He was asleep. He really eats. He really gets tired. And he's back in the boat. He's very relaxed fellow, apparently. He's, he's sawing logs in the back of the boat. He's asleep. That's the humanity of Christ. But in the next moment, he can get up and what? He can rebuke the winds and the sea. And it happens. The storm subsides. That's his divinity. That's Jesus as God. Truly God, truly man in one person. And he can, he can operate from either nature. Now, I also want you to see here the fear of the apostles. Notice when Jesus does this miracle, 
It says, and the men marveled. Now, the term here, thamazo, it could mean just simply that they marveled at the fact that this Jesus that they were with could do such a miracle. In fact, that is somewhat pointed to here because Jesus says, you of little faith. That is, they should have known that he could do this, right? But the little faith here, Jesus doesn't mean quantity, he means quality. You have little faith, and so they marveled that he could do this, but also I think marveled is tinged with a sense of fear. In fact, we know that because in Mark 4.41, Mark uses the term phobos, great fear, in fact. In fact, Mark's point, and it's parallel to this, is that when Jesus heals the storm, or I should say calms the storm, they're more afraid of him, the disciples. They're more afraid of Jesus than they are of the storm. They're more fearful of him. Do you remember last week we looked at Luke 5, verse 8, where Peter, for the first time, started to realize who this Jesus was? There was that great miracle of catching fish. And what was, what was Peter's response? Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. And I think in much the same way you see that fear here. What sort of man is this that even wins and seal bam? Can you imagine Raging thunderstorm, cumulus nimbus, lightning, hail, thunder, driving winds, 40 knots in excess. And he says, be still, and it's done. I tell you, I could have used that a few times when I was flying. That is excellent. But it's a fearsome thing. It's also, for those who believe, a beautiful thing. Years ago, my Uncle Dan... He uh, died of cancer, and I was a brand-new Christian. I didn't know much of the Bible, and so I thought, well, what I did know was this story, and so I shared with them those words in blue. What sort of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? Those are words I gave to my uncle as he was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. The reason I share that with you is because I know the vast majority of in, in here of you are believers. And there's times in your life that are going to be dark and difficult. You have to know who holds your future. It's the one who can control the waves of the sea. That's who it is. That's where our trust is. And so this mastery over the sea shows that indeed Jesus is God. He has all power. Now, I'm going to show you that there's places in the Old Testament where God alone was shown to be the one who's master of the sea. One of the places we see that is found in Job chapter 9. Job chapter 9, remember, that's Job responding to his friend Bildad. And here in Job 9, Job is saying, hey, how can anyone be right before this magnificent God, this holy and righteous God? So he extols his virtue. And notice what he says in Job 9.8. This is a rhetorical question. Notice the rhetorical question. Who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea? That expects an answer. The beautiful thing about a rhetorical question is it expects one answer. And the answer is not, oh, it's Billy Bob or it's Eric or it's Jimmy or Susie or Betty. No, the implied answer is it's God. God alone is the one who can do this. Some years ago, back in 2008, when there was an election that was coming about in the United States, remember there was a boast from one party that if they were elected, they, they believe in global warming, they said that if they were elected a couple of weeks after the election, they were boasting that the, the seas 
and the oceans would begin to recede. Well, of course, that bothered me because I know the one who ultimately controls the sea is God alone. These are the same people who said, we are the ones that we've been waiting for. Well, I haven't been waiting for me. And sad to say, I haven't been waiting for you. I know we're all in this together. We're waiting for Christ. And so we know that Christ alone controls the sea. So do you see that some of the Marxist claims really are designed to be antichrist in nature? Now, I want you to see that this isn't the only passage that talks about the mastery of the ocean and the sea in the Old Testament. One of my favorites is found here in Psalm 77, 19. This is about the Psalter talking about God's power in delivering Israel from Egypt during the Exodus. Notice what's said. Psalm 77, 19, it says, Your way was in the sea, in your path in the mighty waters, and your footprints may not be known. You know, if I were to deliver Israel from Egypt, I'd have all sorts of schemes. But I'll tell you one that I couldn't master was the way in the sea. The term way there, Derek in Hebrew, means the road. Where was the Lord's road? It was in the sea. Here's the battle plan. God says, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to take that Red Sea and I'm going to go like this. And I'm going to bring my people through it. And when the Egyptians follow, I'm going to put the water on them and I'm going to drown them. That's a battle plan. That's one that no human can do. That's what the writer of the psalm is saying. Who has that kind of power? God alone. Dear ones, when Jesus walked on the waters and when he calmed the storm on the sea, he was showing that he is the God of Job 9.8 who alone treads down the waves of the sea. These miracles were for those purposes, demonstrating who he is and that he has all authority. Now, I want to talk about the next category. The next category of miracles, of course, is over the illnesses and infirmities that we have in this life. And what I want you to see today is that when Jesus healed all sorts of diseases, it really is a fulfillment of a text in Isaiah, Isaiah 35. Now, before I put up Isaiah 35 on the screen, verses 5 through 6, I want to tell you Isaiah 35 is ultimately about the messianic kingdom to come that's still in our future. But what Jesus does at his first coming is he gives a down payment, a foreshadowing, so that we know that he's good to bring the ultimate kingdom. Notice what it says, Isaiah 35, 5 through 6. It says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. The Arabah is a desert uh, in in israel it's really part of the rift valley from galilee all the way down to the after remember after the sea of galilee of this rift valley all the way down to the dead sea i'm sorry the the red sea and so that's where it is now um i want you to turn your bibles if you will turn your bibles to ezekiel 47 12 please turn your bibles there what i want you to see that there's many passages in the old testament that claim when the messianic kingdom is in place There will be healing, that's the operative term, healing for the nations. And the reason I want you to see this is, again, Jesus at his first coming gives us down payments of what will be fully true at his second coming. So turn to Ezekiel 47, 12. Now, as you're turning to Ezekiel 47, verse 12, you're going to see waters flowing from this throne. I believe it's the throne of the Messiah, Jesus, when he returns during the millennial kingdom that will be based in Jerusalem. 
And one of the questions people ask is, are these rivers real? Are they symbolic? And I think the answer is yes. They really are real, but they also symbolize the life that's found in the Holy One of Israel, the Messiah in Jerusalem. So notice what it says of this river. It says, by the river on its bank, this is, again, Ezekiel forty-seven twelve. By the river on its bank, on one side and on the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Stop there. Who's in the sanctuary? Jesus, the Messiah. Do you remember during the Feast of Tabernacles? You read about this in John. Remember they pour out water, symbolizing one day flowing living waters will come from Jerusalem. That's what they're depicting that God will tabernacle among them. And Jesus says, all of you are thirsty, come unto me, and I'll give you waters of life. Right? He's the fulfillment of this. So it'll flow from their sanctuary. Notice it says at the end, it says their fruit will be for food and their leaves for what? For healing. Now, I don't mean to turn this into a complete Bible study, but turn your Bibles ahead. This is worth it. Turn to Revelation 22.2. Revelation 22.2, the last chapter of your Bible, Revelation 22, 2, I want you to see that this healing for the nations isn't something just during the millennial kingdom, but also the eternal states. So remember, we go from the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, where he has his headquarters in Jerusalem, but then after that is over, there's a battle of Gog and Magog in which the Lord calls fire upon his enemies. We read this in Revelation 20. And after that, he gives us a new heaven's a new earth, and a new Jerusalem comes down. And notice what it says about this new Jerusalem, Revelation 22, 2. It says, in the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life. Stop there. What did we lose in the garden because of sin? Access to the tree of life. What do we have now through faith in Christ and all the work that he did for us? Access to the tree of life. Notice it's bearing what? Twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for what? Healing of the nations. That is what's going to happen at the second advent of Christ. So what Jesus does is he gives a down payment. He shows his mastery and his ability to heal at his first coming so that people will trust in him. And I want you to, again, look on the screen with me. I want you to look at this blind, deaf, and lame These are the three that Jesus will give as evidence that he is the Messiah to John the Baptist. In fact, I want you to see this for yourself. When we get to Matthew chapter 11, remember John the Baptist has that moment of doubt. He's going to be put to death. He's in prison by Herod. And so he wants to know for sure in his doubt that Jesus is the Messiah. So Matthew 11, verse 2, it says, Now when John while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples. Notice verse 3, and he, he said to him, so here's the message he sent to Jesus via the disciples. It says, are you the expected one, notice in blue, or shall we look for someone else? Now that phrase, are you the expected one, I think literally it's, are you the one who comes? Or it's, it's a participle, are you the coming one? And I believe that that's a messianic phrase derived from Genesis 49.10. Passages like Psalm 118.26, blessed is the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. So what he's really asking is, are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah or should we look for someone else? Now, what evidence is Jesus going to supply? If you were going to pick one thing, what's it going to be? 
Well, listen to what Jesus supplies. Jesus answered and said to him, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Notice it's the blind, the lame, and the deaf. That was what was promised. Let me go backwards. By the way, don't try this at home. I'm a trained professional. Never go backwards in a PowerPoint. Blind, deaf, and lame. Isaiah 35. Jesus says, I'm the fulfillment of that. I'm the one who brings that about. I'm the Messiah. That's what he's demonstrating, dear brothers and sisters. Now, one thing I want to point out, I'm going to do a little bit of an excursus. Do you remember last week, we're also in Matthew 4, and we saw the summary of the uniqueness of the apostles' calling? I want to show you quickly that the apostles do these same miracles. They raise the lame and the deaf and the blind, the heal. And the reason they do so is to show that they are the unique spokesmen for Christ. So I want you to see that. Now, why is this important? When I was a brand-new Christian, I hung around people in my Christian walk who were saying, well, you should be doing miracles all the time. Well, if that's true, then am I not on par with the apostles? And if that's true, then is the Bible really unique? We don't have the uniqueness of the Scriptures Therefore, why? Because if anyone can speak for God and Christ, then anyone can write Scripture. Are you with me? So, no, these apostles were being authenticated as his spokesmen because they did the same thing that Christ did. And I want you to see that. Notice here in Acts 3, 2 through 8, this is at the ninth hour at the temple. Peter and John are going up, and they find this man. Notice verse 2. It says, and a man who had been lame from the mother's wo- his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. Now stop there in verse 2. What does it mean that this man had been lame from his mother's womb? Remember earlier I said the Jews believed that in order for them to be healed, that miracle would be on par with God's initial creation. It's not that this man had use of his legs, then he lost it. And so now that he's healed, it's kind of a restoration. No, this is a creative act of God if he's going to be healed. Well, notice what happens. He's healed by the apostles. And again, it's God through them. The Holy Spirit does the work. But the apostles are those who are on the scene. It says, with a leap, he stood upright. This is the layman and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Notice the term leap. He was healed and he leaped. Notice the term leaping. That's from Isaiah 35, 6. The lame would leap like a deer. So all of a sudden, now the apostles in Jerusalem are doing the same miracle Jesus is. Why? Because God is testifying that they are the spokesman for Christ. Okay? Turn your Bibles, if you will. Let me prove this to you. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, 3 through 4. We've got time. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. Please turn your Bibles there. I want the writer of Hebrews to tell you that God was testifying with the apostles by doing miraculous deeds. Hebrews 2, 3 through 4. Please turn your Bibles there. Now, what you're going to see here in Hebrews 2, verse 3 is a question. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The point there is that if those who neglected the old covenant incurred judgment a covenant which was from God, but albeit a lesser one, how much more are you and I going to 
receive judgment if we neglect the greater covenant with greater revelation that is the new covenant. So he says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Notice the evidence. He says, after it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Now stop there. Who are are those who heard? It's the apostles. We talked about that last week. Notice verse 4. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Now, what's very interesting about these miracles and acts, especially the healing of the lame, remember the programmatic verse of Acts, Acts 1.8. Jesus says to his apostles, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the apostles in Acts 3, they heal in Jerusalem a lame man. Philip, the apostle in Acts chapter 8, in Samaria, he heals a lame man. When you get to Acts chapter 14, the ends of the earth, Lystra, you have at the hands of the apostle Paul the healing of a lame man again. And the point of all of this is to show that, yes, these are the spokesmen for Jesus Christ. They do his miracles, not because they're special in a human sense, but because they are the authoritative spokesman for Jesus Christ. Do you see then that if we all claim to do miracles, we can be shooting ourselves in the foot? If everyone does miracles and everyone's an apostle, then we don't have a word of God that we're to contend for, as Jude says in Jude 3, that's once and for all handed down to the saints. All right, now, let's get back to our categories for Christ healing. I want to hit the third one, which is his mastery over the demonic. Jesus can not only heal the sick, not only his mastery over creation, but he has mastery over the demonic realm. And one place we see this is in Matthew chapter 9, verses 32 to 34. Notice it says, As they were going out, a mute demon-possessed man was brought to him, that's to Jesus, And after the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed and were saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Now, first of all, notice in blue, we have a twofer here. We have someone who's demon-possessed, but he's also mute. And Jesus has mastery over both. Now, notice the reaction. They were amazed, the same term that's used of the apostles when they see Jesus calm the storm, they were amazed. Absolutely shocking the power that is on display. And again, for those who have a love for the truth, this is evidence and proof of who the Messiah is. But notice the reaction of the Pharisees. They claim that he's casting out the demons by the power of Satan himself. And again, as we're going to look later in the book of Matthew, that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit uses the miracles of Christ to testify as to who he is. Brothers and sisters, the whole purpose of the miracles of Jesus Christ is to prove that he is the Messiah with the ultimate healing, forgiveness of sins, and therefore everlasting life. Now, the absolute proof of that and the paradigm, I think, for all Jesus' miracles are found here in Matthew 9. Remember in Matthew 9, you see also the same narrative in Mark chapter 2, in the parallel synoptic. Remember, Jesus had just gone to his hometown in Capernaum. He had traveled there. 
And these men, apparently, according to Mark 2, they'd actually gone to the great lengths of lowering a friend that they had who was a paralytic. They lowered him through a thatch roof. And that meant they had to spend a lot of time pulling that roof apart. Think about all the effort. And so they lower down this paralytic man to Jesus. They want him healed. And remember, what does Jesus say to him? Your sins are forgiven. Now think about that. They went through all this trouble. They're pulling apart the thatch roof. They lower down the paralytic man, and they hear that his sins are forgiven. Well, to them, that's a yawner. And sadly, that, that shouldn't be the honor, but that's what it is. And Jesus perceives that the leadership of Israel is saying he's a blasphemer, Jesus, because he's claiming something only God can do, the forgiveness of sins. And so notice how Jesus handles this. Matthew 9, 5 through 7, Jesus perceives what's going on. He's already told the man his sins are forgiven. And so he asks the crowd, everyone there, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Now notice in blue, if you want to know, maybe this is a time to jot a note down, Matthew 9, 6. This is a refrigerator verse if there ever were one. This is the purpose for the miracles. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. Now, let me stop there. You know what I love? I love sometimes the brevity. Notice verse 7. What does verse 7 say? Very profound. And he got up and went home. <laughs> Don't you love that? It, I kind of want to add to it. And he watched Hogan's Heroes and had a tuna fish sandwich. It's just, it's just so mundane. He gets healed and he's forgiven by the, the Holy One of Israel. And he got up and he went home. <laughs> I love that. Dear ones, notice what's the purpose of the miracles? To show that Jesus can give us the ultimate miracle we all need, the ultimate healing, the forgiveness of sins, and everlasting life. Do you know that you can have a temporary healing now, but still go to perdition? Think about Lazarus. He was raised bodily. By the way, I think Lazarus was a believer, but he was raised bodily to die again. He needed the ultimate healing, and I'm sure he had it. He would be raised again in his glorified body. How do we know that we can have this ultimate healing that we need? It's through believing in Jesus Christ. Let me give the bad news, and then I want to give the good news of the gospel. The bad news revealed in the scriptures is very bad. It says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If someone wonders whether or not they're a sinner, trust me, the Bible says you are. I am too. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What's the problem with being a sinner? Well, we're incompatible with a holy and righteous God. He is holy, and we are not. And we can't be in his presence. And so we see in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. And this death isn't just simply a temporary one where we're, our body goes into the ground and our soul goes elsewhere. But one day it's an eternal death separated from God in the lake of fire. That's what death is. It's separation from God. So that's about the worst news I could ever think of. But it's precisely in light of this bad news that the good news shines. The good news is centered on the person and work of Jesus, that God would send his son who existed as God and with God from all eternity. At a point in time in history, he would send him through the virgin birth to become a man. Jesus, truly God and truly man in one person, and he would live the perfect life that none of us could so that by faith in him, his righteousness could be credited to our account. He would do miraculous deeds. He would be the original preacher of the gospel. And he would do 
that which only God could do. Jesus also went to a cross, and he died on that cross, a substitutionary death. Jesus the just on behalf of us the unjust in order that we might be brought to God. When Jesus died on the cross, he did so to become wrath for us. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God the Father made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The proof that Jesus did these things was seen by the fact that on the third day after his death, he was bodily raised from the dead. His resurrection proves all of his claims. When Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, we can believe it. Why? He was raised from the dead. The same Jesus ascended to the heavens. He's seated at the right hand of God from where he's coming to bring a glorious kingdom for his people that trust in him, but wrath and damnation upon those who reject him. What must we do to be right with Jesus? Jesus gives a command, not a suggestion, not a helpful hint, but the command in Mark 1.15 goes to all people for all time. We are to repent and believe the gospel. Repentance is turning from unbelief and idolatry and turning to God in his terms, which is faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. If you will trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ today by the authority of Scripture, I say to you that you will have the ultimate healing, the healing of the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life, all because Jesus really is the Messiah who heals. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for the miraculous works that you did in the life of your Son, that in him we know that he is God and that he is the Savior of all. We pray, Heavenly Father, for those who may be listening who don't yet believe that today would be their day to repent and believe and have the forgiveness of sins. We also pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give us opportunity in the weeks ahead, in the months ahead, especially around Easter, Lord, that we'd be given opportunity to proclaim your gospel, that you would regenerate hearts before us and give us boldness to have the gospel upon our lips and that we would live it out. I pray, Heavenly Father, you'd help my brothers and sisters persevere in this difficult age, that we'd remember that you're coming for us to bring the ultimate healing associated with your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.